Hello and welcome to episode three of Snapchat Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy May. Now, before we get started, I know, I know it's SAP, not SAP. But you know what? I called it Snapchat because it had a ring to it and I'm going to stick with it. So during my 20 odd years working in SAP, never have I come across such a confusing, frustrating, painful, odd and frankly costly subject as SAP licensing. Rarely do I have a meeting with a client then the subject isn't raised. So I'm delighted in this episode that I'm joined by Jan Cook. Jan is the UK Director of Vocus Labs, which is a global licensing advisory practice. And he's a subject matter expert on SAP licensing, having been involved in the delivery of over 50 diverse licensing projects for some of the world's biggest SAP customers. Jan's experience includes working on and resolving license audit disputes up to $25 million and indirect access disputes up to $75 million. He's performed legally privileged work for specialist law firms and supported preparation of expert witness statements on the customer side in arbitration proceedings. He's also advised on SAP contract negotiations and licensing deals up to $12 million and considers himself to be an expert in S4 and digital access licensing. Hey, Jan, and uh, welcome to Snapchat Podcast. I'm delighted that you're here today with me. No, absolutely. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, no, absolute pleasure. Now, one question I've got to ask before we get into this is, how do you become an SAP licensing expert? How does that happen? Well, it's a good question. I get asked that a lot. It's um, quite a convoluted uh, journey, I have to be honest, but I'll try and keep it concise. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it started with my first ever kind of experience with SAP software, in essence. Uh, I used to work as a retail manager. Um, I was the UK flagship store manager, um, the most senior manager in the business. And I was looking after their flagship store over trade uh, across the London Olympic Games, believe it or not. And we we were doing a store reporting project and that was actually based on business objects. The firm actually ran SAP business objects as their reporting tool. And I was seconded onto the project as a voice of voice of retail in essence right um, and following that project i then moved into an operations role where i supported with store reporting um across the business and at the time i was actually studying prince 2 and i was getting my capm project management certificate mm-hmm. um, which i got then i moved into a project coordinator role with a small it firm who staffed um application development and COTS software product implementations. So I was really just doing project planning and project coordination, but up came a project that was working, they specialized in financial services. You know, up came a project where I was working on uh, or supporting a project that was the integration of a proprietary um, quote management application for an insurance company. And they were kind of interfacing that or improving the connectivity interface with SAP ERP. And with that, with with that kind of projects role working in IT applications came some overlapping responsibilities with looking after contract terms for software purchased purchased and monitoring use rights both in terms of project risks and things like that. Um, then I moved to a company called Red Red Commerce, who at the time had a no well they were a, yeah they were they were a, a, a silver partner mm-hmm. and I worked as an SAP contracts consultant there. Right. And of course, nowadays that's you know their implementation part of the business. They've wound that up, but they're now more better known for their the recruitment side of the business. By the time of working for them, I actually um, had a customer who was doing a divestment 
and there was a, a huge licensing impact to that. They had invested, you know, eight figures in SAP, and it was becoming quite arduous and difficult. So they asked us to to try and step in and help. It's not something that we could handle. So we found a company called JNC. Mm-hmm. So in fact, we let we, we partnered them, uh, and they got on well. And actually, when the time came to move on from Red. JNC hired me to be a licensing consultant for them. Right, got um, it. So I worked for, for JNC and kind of worked my way up to global client engagement manager. So really making use of my, um, you know, actively consulting on projects. I think at JNC I ended up doing almost 40 uh, different licensing projects. Um, and there I was looking after their kind of global portfolio of kind of major, major customers. So I remember there I got exposed to working on some major projects, large deal negotiations, big audit disputes, indirect access defense cases, um, doing licensing reviews for some of the SAP's biggest global customers. And then for the last year and a half, I've been working for Vocus Labs as their uh, UK practice director and um, senior consultant as part of their global advisory team. So it's uh, I, d- I don't know how anyone else becomes a licensing consultant, but that's... Uh, <laughs> I think, That's the inter- my story. I think the interesting thing is uh, over over the course of this podcast, uh, whenever I interview anyone in the course of how we get into the roles that we do, how do we even get into SAP seems to be in some respects so random. So we all work on our careers in a, in a set path, but actually the path yeah. we take is, is quite, um, quite windy sometimes. Yeah. I, you know, got- I, I anticipated that question and I was actually trying to, uh, I tried to deliver a shortened version of that story, but uh- <laughs> No, get a bunch of SAP consultants together <laughs> over a beer and ask them how they got into it. You'd be there all night. Um, yeah. so, so I've got to ask, I've got to ask this question, and, and it, it's probably the killer question, but what's the most common issue with SAP licences? Um, well, first of all, um, over-licensing. Um, if, you, if, if you look at SAP's price list, the, common, the most common element of over-licensing is user licensing, and mm-hmm. SAP have over 20 different types and, you know, license types. Customers just aren't making use of those, and they, they, they end up licensing too many users through the lack of system administration, and they tend to be over-licensing users with the more expensive types, when in fact they could be licensing users with much cheaper types. Now, the, the problem with that is when you're consuming more expensive types, you're actually um, increasing your maintenance base. So that's the license cost base. And that's what you base your annual maintenance um, charges on. So sometimes we're able to um, optimize user licensing consumption by 50%. Mm. And in, in effect, that actually means that the the software, the, the support maintenance cost that would be applicable to the user license base is therefore halved. So you know, customers really don't have to be overpaying. There are ways of saving money. Apart from that, complex license metrics, so either difficult products that are difficult to, to, to measure in terms of the license metric or complex use rights and license definitions make it difficult to understand what the relevant number is to declare for a self-declaration project product. And, of course, other things like indirect access. Um, uh, I was going to come <laughs> on to that. that that's the issue. We'll hold that one for a second because I, 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 that's a whole yeah. new avenue, isn't it? But um, well, yeah. I, th- I think you raise a really good point in terms of being over-licensed, particularly in, in the current environment. You know, we're right, as we record this, in February 2021. We're, we're 
towards the end, hopefully, of the pandemic, but we've been saying that for a long time now. And so customers are under a huge amount of cost pressure and they are looking for yeah. anything they can do to optimise their SAP estates, reduce the total cost yeah. of ownership. And licensing yeah. is, is an obvious place. I think most customers probably feel that they are in fear of the dreaded audit uh, and, and yeah. are under-licensed. Yeah, well, it's, it's a strange mix because you can, as I mentioned, you can be over-licensed in 40% of your estate, right-licensed on 20 and yet under-licensed on the, the remainder. So uh, as much as you can be over-licensed on, on, on certain products, um, audits, under-licensing is basically usage of a software product that is in excess of the license level or the entitlement that you have. And of course, if you're not monitoring, controlling and tracking that effectively, in essence, you may feel like you're over-licensed, but if you're audited six months later or you might find that, in fact, you're not only you're already under-licensed, but then you're handed a bill for another million quid worth of licenses. So there's always that risk of unbudgeted costs through a lack of control over use of the software and a lack of control over understanding the contracts and the metrics and the the use rights of the software that you're using. So, so it's equally um, equal risks there in terms of in terms of cost pressure. Because of course, if you're over licensed, you're paying too much, and if you're under licensed, then you're going to be hit with unbudgeted cost, which will affect which will affect IT budgets and and, and spend and and projects and things like that. So, over and above that, indirect access just really adds to the pot because it's a, a completely new dimension of. Mm. of risks that, that can really add to those cost pressures and, and audit risks. And I'm guessing if you do have an audit and you're over-licensed in one area and under-licensed in another, do SAP look at it in the round or do they just say, well, that's your tough, you've uh, overpaid there but no. uh, and I'll, I'll hold you to the underpayment? Well, no, they don't because the only, the only con- contractual position that gives you the entitlement to do that is something called a flex agreement. So you have a bill of material of products and you're licensed mm-hmm. to the level of 5 million and a flex agreement allows you to use those products within the, 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 the total licensed level of, of, of 5 million or the value of that flex agreement contract and therefore you don't have to worry about the usage levels of any given product within that bill of material as long as the total consumption doesn't exceed the, the flex value. So that's called a flex agreement but if you're not on a flex agreement you don't have the right to, to overuse any one product. So to be over-licensed on products A, B, and C just means that you have surplus entitlement, that you you are assumed that you will keep that entitlement and you'll use it in the future. And if you're under-licensed on products you know, D, E, and F, mm. you will simply have to true those products up to get them compliant, and you don't necessarily have the immediate right. Of course, it would be sensible when you are faced with under-licensing that you try where possible to try and offset that using some surplus assets. And, of course, it depends whether you've used the software or it's sat on the shelf permanently. So if if you've used it and you've got business value from it, it's very unlikely that you can then trade that against something new because you can't buy an Audi and then once you finish with it, you get a free one, you know. uh, If only. You know, yeah. in the software world, if you if you if you genuinely have not used a product and it's sat on the shelf, SAP might be inclined to say, "Well, we'll give you credit for that." But if you have made use of a software product, it's less likely, not impossible, but slightly less likely. And and when you're in that position, you have to then start relying on buying other stuff because, again, 
what lubricates a, a deal like that is if you're actually making a net spend, yeah. then you can trade some shelf, you can mitigate some non-compliance risk. And as long as there's a net gain for SIP, they're a bit more amenable to what they will and won't permit, but it's certainly not automatic. And we saw quite a lot of that I, I, I did in the early days of, of HANA coming on board. And we were yeah. seeing a lot of that. Um, so what does does trigger the SAP audit process? Is there is there any one thing or is it a bit random? Wow, there's, ma- there's many different things. Um, relationship, if you're not spending, I, I think the number one driver is if you're not spending because account managers have targets. I mean, they, they drive account revenue to, to, to meet and hit targets and accounts that are not spending. Well, you know, an audit is the perfect way of deriving revenue from that account or and and and, and what what the, they're trying to make their audit processes more friendly well whether in practice they've actually made any differences to the way they're they're working but most certainly they'd hit a client with an audit you know rack up a nice big um tasty bill and then they would make it go away if the customer paid x or if they bought you know a, a certain a license level of HANA, so it was kind of used as a leverage stick to say, right, you're moving, you know, you're moving down our path. You know, it's either you pay the hefty audit fine, or you, we can mitigate that by the purchase of of Espor HANA. Um, so, in fact, I did lots of licensing reviews for customers where, you know, a year, two years back, I would see HANA on the bill of material. I'd see it in there, yep. but not in use. And the first question I'd ask is, were you audited? Most often than not, the answer to that question was yes. Wow! You know, so that's that's um, that's 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 one of the drivers. I think other things like mergers, acquisitions, divestments, large-scale business change. Because when there is large-scale organisational change, or indeed IT change through digital transformation, new project pro- projects adopt adoption of new technologies. Like you know, look at the the Agile case. I mean, SAP discovered. Uh, the Connect platform um, online yep. because the Agio had promoted how fantastic this this was. So large scale business change and IT change can can trigger an audit because SAP will see opportunities to go. You know what? Let's just make sure they're right licensed. And um, it, it's interesting you say that because I've been uh, involved over the last couple of years with a lot of SAP divestments and. You know, there's a lot of pressure under those organisations on both the buy and the sell side to divest. There's normally a TSA. So the focus is very much around how do we technically carve out that data? How do we move it onto a new platform? What's the security of that platform? What platform is it going to sit on indeed? Um, And and doing it within the terms Mm -hmm. of the TSA. No one's actually ever sat down with me in that situation and said, ah, what about licences? And you know oh, the assumption on both sides is that it's it's fully it's fully sorted, but you know you know so it's it, it's quite an interesting area that's often well, overlooked. It really is. I mean, for example, when you're divesting a business, um, you have to look at what rights you have to carve out the licenses. So if you can if you can say right, they're going to take a blue you know a blueprint of that system and use that system on a TSA for six months before they develop their own SAP systems and license their own software. You have to say, well, if you're carving out the IT system, what portion of usage are you carving out? So what systems and processes? What are, if you measure that that new carved out landscape, what are the, the usage metrics for that, that new entity? And what are the license level it needs? 
Now, the, the old contract surely doesn't need those licenses anymore and would be left over licenses if those couldn't be novated. So what what rights do you have in the contract? TSA rights, you know, for customers in active, you know, highly active M&A markets mm. should have inherently better TSA rights. For example, a standard, you might have transitional rights for three to six months, but yep. I worked with a client in America who was going to take two years to migrate to their own S4 HANA system after divesting. And SAP were going to charge them $5 million wow. as, a, as a flat fee just to extend that from the standard TSA rights to a full two-year transitional period. So the customers really have to put in a lot of foresight to understand, you know, how do they protect themselves against all these, um, you know, licensing issues and costs. Absolutely. Now, you've mentioned it twice now, and I deliberately haven't jumped on it, but it, it needs its own area because I'm, it's the one thing that, that frightens the living daylights out of clients in terms yeah. of, you mentioned the Diageo case, we call it digital yeah. pass-through, licence pass-through, yeah, yeah. digital access. So this yes. was the notion, wasn't it, that if you transact data in SAP and then yeah. export that into another application, um, yeah. there are user licences. So how, how does that work and, and what has been the implication of that? Well, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. There's, there's a myriad of different expressions to describe this particular licensing scenario. Um, in, in fact, the terms in, indirect access is quite an old term, and digital access is just merely the rebranding of, of indirect access. Um, and, of course, SAP have released a new licensing model, and indirect access, of course, was quite stigmatized by all the, the, the kind of bad press they got around it. So... Digital access, again, is, is more su- supposed to be branded in, in in accordance with today's digital transformation sort of, you know, mm. notions and ideas. But um, indirect access or digital access is merely the licensing of use, and that would be the indirect use of SAP. Now, in SAP agreements, it clearly says that use, you know, whether directly via dialogue user account or indirectly via upstream proprietary third-party application needs to be licensed. Um, and and in the contracts, it describes the fact that the software functionality must be licensed by the appropriate package and any users using the software, i.e. using directly or indirectly, <laughs> would need to have a user license. Right. Now, in the very, very early days, this was it's really spawned from protecting IP and software theft in essence, because if you think about it, if you put a proprietary application, you just developed a, an application to sit between a population of a thousand users and SAP by virtue of the fact that they don't touch a SAP system and they don't log in directly, mm. you could avoid license fees, Absolutely. you know? So, so really indirect access was supposed to be license fee avoidance, you know, to curb any possibility that customers might have to try and, put systems between SAP and, and users to, to, to avoid license fees. And the problem is with with then the innovation around SAP and connecting other technologies, well, the thing is that the, license, the, the, the way that the contracts are written, it means that if you connect Salesforce to SAP, it's, you know, the licensing conditions are much the same as if you just, if you put a proprietary application in between users and SAP. So again, what it comes down to is how they're using the system. So I'll give you an example. For example, if they hit submit sales order and through via synchronous call, that order then arrives in SAP, 
you can say that that user has used SAP indirectly because they may as well have logged into SAP to mm-hmm. submit it directly yep. as they are to have pressed the button to submit it in, indirectly. So, I mean, that's that's a, a kind of stonewall, cut and shut. That's, that's indirect use according to the contracts. And, and that, in essence, is where the problems happen. I mean, uh, an employee, for example, who's not an SAP user, clicks a button on a, an HR web application to say view payslip. That synchronously calls data. So in the opposite direction, we're not putting data in. We're actually taking it out. Yep. Synchronous call, the payslip data arrives in the platform as displayed in front of the user, and SAP would deem that to be used because they may as well have logged in directly to view that payslip. And it matters not whether they have done so directly or indirectly. So, again, sorry for the long-winded explanation, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. No, and I, I think it needs that, that long-winded <laughs> you know, explanation because it's not an easy subject. And actually, you know, when you put it into context of uh, protecting IP and maybe some of the ways around sort of not licensing yourself for, for, for SAP, it makes perfect sense to have that in place. Um, yeah. I just think in the current environment, particularly working for an SI, where you have clients, but let's face it, you know, um, I'm sure SAP would like to think everyone was using wall-to-wall SAP, but where you are using a best-of-breed approach or many different applications, it does start to get incredibly complex. I mean, do you have tools to be able to identify this from an automatic point of view, or is it something quite manual and arduous? Yeah, well, yeah, indirect access is one of two things. Today, indirect access, if you're not subscribed to digital access, you're really looking for... Um, highly productive third-party systems, and you're really looking at where the you're looking at the connection point mm-hmm. <clears throat> between an SAP system and a third-party system. So you can use um, software tools like I work for Vocus Labs at the moment. Mm-hmm. We have a, a SAM tool called uh, SAMQ, and that can measure indirect usage activity. So it's, right. it's if you do it from a tooling perspective, you're kind of working from the bottom up. So you work with data, and you work uh, the, the tool can, for, for example, tell you. The, different, the number of transactions, it can differentiate between change, view, and create transaction, which have different implications on indirect use. And from that, you can profile where the risk is, and you can follow those connections upstream to those responsible applications. It's much harder to do it from a top-down approach, where you have to look at the entire enterprise architecture and really look at every single system connected, map the processes, and look at the data flows and connectivity and what functionality has been triggered and you know, it's much easier to kind of automate and collect data and, and analyze and profile risk than it is to do, to say, a top-down assessment from a kind of functional point of view. But yeah, I mean, we've got tools. There are other companies that do similar tools. Mm-hmm. If you're an end-user customer, you can buy or license one of these tools to help you do an assessment. Or indeed, you can hire a consulting firm who will use a third-party tool or in our case, if someone hires us to do an assessment, we're using our own tooling. Yep. And I think one of the only ad- advisory firms, or, or certainly one of the, 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 the top advisory firms that actually use our own tooling rather than using you know, someone else's. Someone else's. So, Absolutely. So yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask a, a question that might seem a bit dumb, but it's worth asking and all the same. Does SAP have a standard licensing structure or is it open to negotiation? Let's say again. It, 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 does SAP have a standard licensing uh, structure uh, oh, yeah. in terms of price structure, or is it open to negotiation? Yeah. Well, everything, believe it or not, everything is open to negotiation. For, for example, you, you, you cannot see 
um, on SAP's price list, a thing called uh, a single metric contract, but they do exist. Right. For example, I'm aware of clients who license SAP based on the number of barrels of oil that they extract out of the ground. Okay. And, if they, and as long as they are, are, their productivity remains within that license level, they can use all of the software within the agreed bill of material um, to any extent without becoming non-compliant. I know another retail firm who has their, their single metric contract cap is the number of employees they have. And, you know, when I looked at their contract, they were within 10% of that level. You know, should they exceed that, they would have to proportionately increase the license level to, to, to stay compliant. So they pay a premium for that, though. I mean, you're, you're, okay. you're almost paying full price for all of those software products because that's how SAP then price what they will charge for that single metric co- contract. So it, it's not optimized and you aren't really licensing each product at the optimal license level based on use, but it, you know, you, you pay a premium for that single metric. Um, and so there's so anything really there are, you know, I've, I've customers who've, who've negotiated completely bespoke user license types. So it will have a completely unique name and the use rights are completely bespoke to that organization's needs. And I've seen products as well that have standard priceless metrics that have been negotiated on different metrics that are, you know, where the customers have insisted, well, we need, we want to license all our products on a more consistent, manageable basis. And the customer will, will, you know, be able to negotiate something slightly bespoke. So, yeah, whilst you've got the the, the price list and that's always changing, it's always modernizing, you know, they they, they change their pricing structures, they, they change the tierings and the pricing levels and they change the metrics, the material numbers, the product descriptions. So it can get difficult to track this and keep control of it over time. Um, but but things can be negotiated. It's not rigid and set in stone. And it's good to know. And I think there is a perception, um, particularly in the kind of upper GMB sort of SMB space, where it, it, they feel that it's in some respects it's just a, a, a price list and, and that's it. Whereas mm. actually what we're seeing, particularly in the SI market, is more of a move towards business outcomes and, and pricing based on business outcomes. So it's no surprise yeah. that SAP are aligned to that. Um, I, I kind of want one, one question that I've got to ask is, mm. what one piece of advice would you give to any client, SAP client about licensing? Well, it goes right back, it goes right back to almost to the beginning of your SAP ownership lifecycle. It's never too late to implement good software asset management. It, it really isn't. Um, implementing good software asset management can help take control. It can give you uh, assurance on your compliance position today, which helps you plan and budget for the future. It can help avoid future non-compliance and licensing issues um, and it can help you identify opportunities to save money so if you really are on top of things then yeah you can cut costs and you can you know license the software more effectively but yeah I mean my, my advice is from, right from the, the, the beginning of the SAP ownership lifecycle I don't know why more companies don't um, deploy and adopt you know tooling it's re- you know relative to the cost of licensing SAP, licensing a SAM tool is actually quite cheap. It's, it's relatively yeah. cost effective, and yet the value you get, is, I would say, was exponentially greater than the investment that you have to make. Um, so I'd certainly say, well, if you're not tooling inclined, really looking at you know negotiating good agreements, make sure 
you are reading the terms of your contracts mm-hmm. and make sure you keep a very detailed bill of material. I see lots of clients relying on very basic spreadsheets which don't have, for example, each order form set out with the, you know, the the, 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 the number of blocks licensed, um, the, the, the list price, the discount, the net license fee. And the thing is that this information becomes very useful over time because you can see how the terms and conditions have changed. You can see what average net discount you've had over time. You can you can double check if you've been awarded the right pricing. There's, there's a myriad of benefits to, to keeping good entitlement records. I mean, most of the time when I do a contract review for a client, there's a contract missing. You know, something was actually terminated and it hasn't been accounted for or the inventory wasn't kept wow. up to date. So customers sometimes think that they're licensed to X when in fact the licensing is Y. You know, there's, there's some discrepancy in their, their entitlement records. So it's very important to keep good, good, good entitlement records from, from the very beginning mm. and then constantly be measuring usage. So out with the annual audit process, customers really should be doing that either quarterly or biannually and doing a similar process and actually tracking things. So they should be identifying risks proactively, whereas if you're subject to an annual audit and you just receive a bill, most customers will pay it without challenging it, mainly because they don't know how to challenge that. They don't know why that that bill or that interpretation of a licensing metric or condition could potentially be wrong. Yep. Um, give you a quick example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Satvistex purchased for a certain customer mm-hmm. um, and Vistex is, is priced on revenue and business revenue is 10.1 billion and it's sold in blocks of let's say 1 billion I think it's actually blocks of a uh, 100 million but it's far easier to compute so yep. that customer would need 11 blocks for example mm-hmm. but if in the contract it states that Vistex was only bought for a specific business division then in fact you only have to declare the revenue for that that specific division now I came across a, a an example of this, we're reading the contract revealed that, in fact, they only had to declare seven billion worth of revenue against right. that metric. Yep. So the metric's revenue, but you actually have to read the contracts and dig into the, the use rights and the license definition and the wording to realise how you actually declare that number. And that, that knowing that and, and being on top of that every single audit for every single product would be the would be a, a product of, of of having good software asset management and good monitoring and controlling of your your licensing estate so no no i mean like all things in life um, they, they, they sound pretty um dull and boring but it's the the things like backups isn't it you know how many times people said oh you what's your backup strategy and it's like well okay yeah and it only <laughs> and it, it, it comes to haunt you at the end um true. so conscious of time but what what do you think sap could do um to improve the clarity and understanding of licensing you think they can do something? Yeah, I mean, I think they could make less changes to the price list and pricing metrics and make them easier and, and simpler for customers to not only understand, but make them easier to monitor and control. I think with some of the initiatives, like, for example, SAP are offering customers um Open license contracts, for example, where they will be will be a cloud platform where they can implement various things like um, you know SAP data intelligence, and they license that based on capacity credits. 
So you have to license the platform at a total number of capacity credits, and you can actually deploy any solution within the platform so long as you are only you're consuming the correct number of capacity credits and they'll then sell you a solution and they'll say this solution consumes this many capacity credits but where's the cash value in that mm. you know it's it's how do customers how do customers weigh up just buying it off the the price list as normal versus these converted metric types like capacity credits and cloud conversion credits i, I think licensing is at risk of becoming less transparent and becoming more difficult for customers to quantify and and compare and monitor and track um, in terms of in terms of what the licensing costs are today and what the licensing costs will be in the future. Of course, a capacity credit, uh, you know, I can offer anyone a capacity credit, but what's it really worth? Mm. You know, what's the comparative value of that compared to buying a certain you know cloud software solution on a on a standard user or employee based metric? So I think. I think it just has, you know, SAP have to implement more consistent pricing strategies to make things easier for customers to manage and make sure that in all pricing structures that metrics and use rights and pricing structures are transparent, you know, really easy to understand and transparent customers. I think SAP have got the, 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 the reluctant to share their price list, but if you don't know that, the, that a certain product is, is tiered, cumulative or linear how do you know what what tier is going to apply to you so sap can basically just tell you whatever tier is applicable but if you don't know if it's a 902 or a 903 then how do you know the the, the likelihood of sap ever deceiving anyone is unlikely Mm. and that's not what i'm saying but how do you know as a customer you know how do you if if you don't know if you don't have the price list and you don't know if it's tiered or cumulative how do you know how much it's going to cost you in the future when you need to true up or increase your license level? And how do you therefore plan and control costs effectively? So, yeah, it's just, it's, for me, it's all about clarity and transparency. Yeah, you're right. And I, and I think the more complex it becomes, the harder it is to track and manage, and it becomes a vicious cycle then. It just becomes too difficult to manage. And that's where I think uh, the, the wheels start to come off the bus sometimes. Yeah, I think the, the other one I'd add to that is measurable. Mm has to be measurable and 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 reliably and accurately measurable and that, that flings us back to digital access where i think at the moment um in principle the the, the document based licensing model for indirect usage is has in principle some advantages but it isn't very easily measurable there's problems with identifying what is a unique externally created document versus one that was the product or a subsequent document created from an already licensed digital document and one that was perhaps created by a dialogue user directly in the system. So which ones are actually countable and chargeable and which ones aren't? So those are kind of little problems that SAP have to iron out, you know, so that they're, they're usable for customers. Well, I think speaking to you, Jan, it's apparent why your role exists and the value that you do bring. And I just like to say, I mean, I think I say this every week, but or every podcast that I could sit here and talk forever. And maybe we'll follow up at a later stage with with something a bit more specific. And if any listeners yeah. do have any particular questions, maybe maybe we can follow up with a, a, a another one on a specific question and answer session yeah. from clients. Um, 
I think I said earlier on that, uh, you know, we're recording this in uh, February 2021. So in the UK, and we're yeah. currently in lockdown. So, um, yep. you know, thank you. I know uh, it's difficult when we're both trying to record from home. Um, we've got all the uh, the, the hardships of uh, of being locked down and, and homeschooling. So apologies for pings, pangs, bangs and, and, and uh, things in the background. But yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been a real, really, really interesting. Thank you for reaching out to me as well uh i know you you're planning to, to yeah. run your own podcast so uh let me repay the favor at some stage when, <laughs> yes. when you do that um, but, yeah. but what i will do for anyone listening um who wants to get in ton, uh, contact with jan i will put the uh contact uh, jan's contact and uh of him himself in voku lab uh in the show notes so they'll be able to view that so um Jan, thank you very much it's been a pleasure Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been great. Appreciate it. Thank you.